Hello, everyone, and welcome to Talk Nerdy. It's Monday, June 12th, and I'm your host, Kara Santa Maria. And this week, I had a great chat with the host of Exploration Outer Space, Emily Calandrelli. But before we dive into that, I want to thank those of you who made Talk Nerdy possible this week. Remember, Talk Nerdy is and will always be 100% free to download, and I'm able to keep it that way because of contributions from listeners like yourselves. And there are a lot of them this week. So first and foremost, I want to thank Rob Shrek for your incredibly generous support, as well as Anna F. from the UK. Oh my gosh, I cannot thank you enough. What a wonderful note that you wrote. I absolutely hear you, girl, on some of the points that you made. I agree 100%, and I really, really appreciate the support. There was also a, a big new supporter this week who would rather I not call him out. So I am calling you out, but not by your name. And I want to thank you so much. You know who you are. Also, through the Patreon portal, remember, you can uh, you can donate two ways. You can go to my PayPal portal, which you can find at carasanmaria.com, or you can visit patreon.com slash talk nerdy and pledge your support that way for myself and for thousands of other incredible creators on Patreon. So over there, I want to thank Phil T-Bear, Timothy Glover, you guys just over the course of so much time, you have given so much and I really appreciate it. Also, Jonathan Wright, Christian Jeffrey, Jeffrey Perez, and Stuart Ogue, oh my gosh, between you and the Honorable Husband and Gabriel Felipe Jaramillo Gonzalez, I just, I thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. I also thank Jafe and I think they hold the records for the most supportive over time, Brian Holden and Jeffrey Sewell. You guys rock. I don't know if I can tell you that enough. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I couldn't do it without you, honestly. And um, I don't think this week is going to disappoint because like I said, I got to chat with a super Super cool chick. Emily Calandrelli is the host of Exploration Outer Space, which is a program within the Exploration Station Saturday morning block of STEM educational shows on Fox. So check your Fox affiliate and watch her show because it's freaking awesome. She also, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm definitely interested. I've, I've tried to do a little bit of research on this, but I think as of right now in the United States, I think she may be the only female host of a science show. Like there are plenty of female correspondents and co-hosts and, and contributors to science shows. I've been one for many years. Emily has done that. And she's even talked about how, you know, when you first go into a network meeting to talk about a television show, often the women are offered the correspondent roles. It's very, very rare to see women in a hosting position, but she does that and she rocks it so hard on her TV show. Yet she also does correspondent work like on a little show you may have heard of, Bill Nye Saves the World. You can stream that right now on Netflix and she is awesome on it. Emily is a great advocate for STEM education, for women in STEM, for exploring space and physics and engineering and aeronautical um, education. She's all the good things and none of the bad things. And I'm so happy to have her here with me. So without any further ado, here she is, Emily Calandrelli. Well, Emily, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm so excited that we finally got to find time <laughs> to chat. And so just so I'm clear, where are you... Um, where are you joining me from? Yes, I am actually in my apartment in San Francisco. This is where I usually work when I'm not filming. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Yeah. And, oh, but I'm showing that you were born in West Virginia. <laughs> yep, yeah, yeah. Spent my first, like, 20... Three years of life in West Virginia, very different than San Francisco. Yeah. Well, fellow <laughs> Southerner, do West Virginians consider themselves Southerners? Uh, they definitely like embrace Southern culture. I think they have like an odd identi identity crisis. Usually they just, they consider themselves from Appalachia. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's like a very specific. Um, yeah. It's a very specific kind of even more special type of Southern culture, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. Like a niche Southern culture. For sure. And so you went to school there, but then, of course, you went on to MIT. 
Yeah, yeah. So I did my undergrad at West Virginia University, uh, two engineering degrees there, and then uh, immediately moved up to Boston. Two engineering degrees. Yeah. So, I mean, it was it was pretty it wasn't actually that hard to get a second one because I did mechanical and aerospace engineering and basically everything you need for one, you also need for the other, except like three additional classes that are specific to aero. Gotcha. So it's a there's a lot of crossover, yet they were distinct enough that you got a dual major, which is cool. exactly. Yeah, exactly. Basically, I like uh leveraged the system and was like, you're telling me if I stay just like a few more months, I'm going to have two engineering degrees? Yeah, that sounds pretty good. That's awesome. And then at MIT, what did you study? I started out doing aeronautics and astronautics engineering. So I have a master's in that. And then I got a second master's in something called science and technology policy. Oh, that's so cool. And so is it more like governmental policy? Is Mm -hmm. it about funding and um, diplomacy? And like, what was the main focus there? Yeah, it's all of that stuff. It's basically it it taught you a few different things. It definitely taught you how to um, essentially create a policy memo on a certain science or technology topic in a way that would could be understood by a like a a lay person by a policymaker. Um, And so you had to understand all of the facets of science in the ways that it would affect the public and make recommendations on what the role of government should be. So yeah, things like funding and risk assessment and regulation, all of that. Oh my gosh. Don't you think that that should be a part of the core curriculum of anybody who gets a science degree? Yeah, I I think that There definitely should be more people who understand that better because that when I started taking those classes, I was like, this is fascinating. This is so interesting. And it was basically a master's degree for students who had a background in science and engineering. So we were all like science and engineers taking this um, taking this class and looking at it from a policy perspective. So they were trying to train people who understood the science really well. Um, and teach them, you know, like science actually is implemented in the real world and what are the implications of that and how should we think about science in the context of the real world? Oh, it's just, that's just genius. I mean, it's yeah. it's one of those things where, you know, I, I lament the fact that most kids, I shouldn't say kids, most adults who go through science <laughs> education, a, never really get um, any education in how to then teach. B, never get any education in how to do public communication of their work. And yeah. C, don't get any policy education, which are all so central to being, I think, a, um, I don't know, a competent scientist. Yeah. And it, I mean, it can benefit your scientific work as well, because if you can speak the language of a policymaker and understand what their interests are, you're more likely to get funding to continue to do your job. So there's there's benefits on both sides, I think. Absolutely. And any scientist knows that a big part of their work as they continue on, if they stay in academia, is writing grants. And who mm-hmm. is reading those grants? You know what I mean? Who are the people with the funding there? Um, mm-hmm. It's interesting that you decided to go that route while you were at MIT. Had you already kind of made a decision that you didn't want to stay within the boundaries of academia? Well, I didn't. I actually, I got to MIT and I had no idea what I wanted to do. I, I went there with the full intention of doing a PhD. Um, but what was kind of funny is when I first got there, my uh, advisor that I was assigned to took a job as the president of a new university in Russia. Huh. And he was <laughs> continuing to advise his students. And I mean, he was a you know wonderful person, but did not have maybe sufficient time to be, uh, you know, growing a lot of PhD students in his lab. Of course. Um, and so I ended up thinking, okay, it's going to be a, a more hard, it's going to be a bit harder than I thought to actually get a PhD. So I have to think long and hard if I actually want it. And I learned that, you know, unless you want to be um, a professional researcher in a lab or you want to go into academia, it it's often not necessary to spend that time and governmental funds to get a PhD. 
So I, I had decided pretty soon after I got there that, mm, no, I'm not doing I'm not doing the Ph.D. And so the policy thing, I just had a few friends that had done it and, you know, spoke really highly of it and tried it out and just loved it. That's so cool. I'm wondering, I guess I was always under the impression, and it may just be because this is how engineering was done where I went to school, but I was under the impression that a lot of engineering students actually don't do PhDs and have terminal masters um, because that's actually an option for them as opposed to, let's say, physics or biology students mm-hmm. where there's often not a terminal master's. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think with with engineering, it's pretty easy to get a job right after you either get your bachelor's degree or master's degree. And I I think it's it that same can't necessarily be said for, you know, the science degrees. Yeah, 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 definitely. I think it totally depends on and also I think there's just so much more availability for engineering students to work in industry right out you know, out the gate. Whereas with, um, not that there's not a ton of job opportunities available for people who are in the other aspects of the STEM fields, but I think sometimes mm-hmm. they have to be creative in, in seeking those job opportunities out. And that's why I love having people like you on the show who have these sort of alternative careers in STEM fields. Um, but you mm-hmm. still went a very traditional route with your training. And so Let's jump into that. What what do you do now? I mean, I already yeah. introduced you at the top of the show. <laughs> I, I time travel a little on the show because I I intro you to the audience before gotcha. I actually record with you. Yeah, but um, tell me about all the cool work that you're up to. Yeah, yeah. So I'm doing a, a bit uh, of a different career than I set out to do when I was yeah. in school. But uh, now I have a I'm a host of a TV show on Fox called Exploration Outer Space. I'm a correspondent on the new Netflix show, Bill Nye Saves the World, and I have a children's book series coming out in um, in August. That's, you know, it's, it's about a little girl who is really good at science and technology and builds gadgets and gizmos and robots to solve mysteries in her neighborhood. Ah, that is so cool. Yeah. Tell me more about that. Yeah, I, um, I wanted to, I've been wanting to write a kid's book for a while, and the opportunity came along and I was really pumped because, you know, the, a lot of kids books these days when they're about adventure or about science or about space, um, the lead character is always a little boy. Mm-hmm. And I've even had friends that have wanted to make um, picture books that had a little girl be the lead adventurer in their picture book. And they've received advice from publishers that, well, maybe you should make the lead character a little boy so it's more relatable, Ugh. which is very confusing advice. <laughs> yeah, it's bummer uh, advice is what it it's is. It's such a bummer. a bummer. It's such a bummer. And so I wanted to make a book that, A, had a lead character that was a girl who was adventurous and scientific. And she is just kind of your average girl but has um, a knack for science and tech. She's, she's not like a kid genius. She's just a tinkerer, and she loves to learn, and she loves to build things, and she loves to try things out. So she tries and fails and, and learns from her failures. And um, the kids, you know, the, the thing that I wanted to create with this book was accidental learning, where the kids are so enthralled and, and invested in the stories and the characters that they don't realize that they're learning until it's too late. And so we've we've infused the book with real science. It's based in reality. They'll learn about um, like ham radio and electromagnetic signals and gears and Arduinos and all of these things that um, I've played with in my spare time. And I wanted to teach the kids about some of the cooler stuff that I've learned. That's so neat. And I love it's kind of based on Ada Lovelace, too. Exactly. Yep. Yep. That is the that is her namesake. Yay. Yeah, I actually, I didn't have anything to do with it, but a friend of mine um, published or started publishing a book series. There's only one book in it so far, but I wrote the foreword to the book. And of course, the namesake is a boy. They started with a boy, but it is going to move on to girls. And it's basically Mm -hmm. taking famous scientists and... um, sort of making them the juvenile versions of themselves. So the first one is Charlie and the tortoise, and it's Charlie going on adventures, and he meets a talking tortoise who kind of helps him learn about evolution. Oh, Um, so cool. (laughs) Which is still, it's very sweet, and I think it's a cool way um, for, for kids to be able to get 
their knowledge about these complex topics. Yeah. And of course, we know kids are smart enough to get, grasp these topics because they. Every time I go to the museum and I, I mm-hmm. run into kids and adults, like the kids know way more than their parents. I know, like <laughs> kids are so much smarter than we think. I I am often reminded of this. Like I go and talk to classrooms a lot and I'll go to a first or second grade classroom and these kids will ask really detailed questions about exoplanets and like the most recent finding of exoplanets and and our solar system I'm like how did where did you guys get this who who was teaching you these things you guys are too smart Uh, are you so excited that because the book's in pre-order right now right that's right yeah yeah when does it when does it actually drop so the first two books will be in bookstores August 29th. How exciting. And are you so pumped that you're going to get to go to bookstores and read to kids out of your oh new book that gosh. you wrote? That's so like, cool. Going to a bookstore and seeing a like Ada Lace in a bookstore is just going to be, <laughs> I'm going to start crying when I see that. That's going to be the best. Oh, that is so exciting. And of course, this is just one aspect of your very rich um, science communication career that you have really made for yourself after school. So you're also, uh, I like to use the term TV presenter, which is what they say in Europe, because I think it sounds way oh. more sophisticated than TV host. I like it. Yeah. Right? When I hear yeah. the word host, I think of like wild on E or something, you know? <laughs> like, a, like a bimbo-y travel series. But when yep. I hear... TV presenter. It's very, you know, Attenborough. So <laughs> you were. Yeah, you I'll ha- take it. I like it. Yeah. So you've been working as a TV presenter um, on a morning kind of, would you say it's space science kids show? Yep, exactly. Yeah. It's geared toward middle school and high schoolers. And I just go around the country to all the different NASA centers and private space companies and even universities and sometimes schools to highlight the coolest projects that are going on in the space industry today. And so that's in the Saturday morning block on Fox. That's right. Yeah, it's part of um, a science block called Exploration Station. And I'm really, I'm so pumped to be part of this production studio that's creating it. They're really just like building out their science empire on Saturday mornings. Uh, They have six different science shows that they show, um, you know, to 100 million homes in the United States. And I have the Outer Space Show, Philippe Cousteau, who's the grandson of Jacques Cousteau. He hosts an Earth science show. We have a biomimicry show. We have a DIY science show that's about like experiments it's pretty cool. That is cool. And you've been doing it for a while, haven't you? Yeah, we're filming our fourth season right now. And we've gotten, uh, it's, it's been doing well. And they like, the, they like the show. And so we've been picked up through season seven, which wow. I am super pumped about because job security is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I know, especially when you're a freelancer. That's yeah. so great to hear. But of yeah. course... I think that probably most of the people who listen to this podcast, unless they have kids, I think a lot of uh, uh, talk nerdy listeners have kids, so they they might have seen you on Exploration yeah. Station watching with their with their kids. But I bet you a lot of people listening are like, "Oh my God, of course, this is the girl from Bill Nye Saves the World." <laughs> yep, yep, that is the most recent gig. That was a pretty awesome one. Yeah, and so how much fun did you have working on this brand new show for Netflix? It was really cool. I mean, when someone tells you that Bill Nye is creating his next big science show and they want you to be a part of it, that's just like dreams coming true all over the place. <laughs> so, yeah, it was it was an adventure. It was challenging. It was, uh, you know, like very nerve wracking because basically I feel as if I'm trying to prove my scientific worth to my science idol. <laughs> so, you know, just a little bit of pressure there. But um, I think it, it turned out really cool. It's quirky. It's funny. It's There's a lot of um, really good aspects to it that um, I'm excited that people are getting to see now. Absolutely. So um, you were one of, I guess... Is it technically three or is it four correspondents on the show? It's five. There's five. Oh, so there's five. Who am I leaving yeah. out? There's two comedians and yes, then there's yes, yes, two yes. like science people. So me and Derek Muller and then Carly Kloss. And then Carly Kloss um, went out as well. And so you, you kind of split up the workload by all five of you going out into the field and doing these great field segments and then coming back into studio and 
talking about what you learned with Bill. So let's talk a little bit about your different field segments for people, A, who have seen it, because I'm sure they want the dirt, but B, for people who <laughs> haven't seen it, maybe it'll get them excited to go onto Netflix and, and binge watch the show. So where did yeah. you get to go? So I went to India. I went uh. all the way to India, which was really cool because I'd never been to, to India before. Um, so this was, you know, an adventure because A, it was for the Bill Nye show and B, I'd never been to India before and C, it was it was freaking India. Like, yeah, India. seriously. <laughs> so <laughs> so that was pretty cool. I One of the segments I did, the episode that I'm most proud of is the vaccine episode. I love that one because we really highlighted a lot of the ways as to why some people don't believe vaccines work or think that vaccines are dangerous and kind of took a deep dive into the uh, psychology behind it all instead of just saying like we're right and they're wrong and come on guys let's get to work you know they really looked at um, all of the reasons why parents either don't vaccinate or create their own schedule but in India um, my part was you know I actually interviewed a person who was stricken with polio Mm -hmm. which was a pretty powerful experience I had never seen polio I didn't know what polio was really Um, and that I mean that was a very that was one of the hardest interviews I've ever done I'm sure. And so, oh, wow. That's, I mean, it's so fascinating that we are so close to eradicating polio. I actually had the head of um, science eradication efforts for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation on the show maybe about a month or two ago. And I learned, yeah, I learned so much from him about like why efforts have been difficult, but why polio is such a prime example of of a disease that we can get rid of because humans are the only reservoir. So once there are no more human cases, there will be no more polio. And we are so, so close. I know. And one of the things that I have since learned that was really interesting as to, you know, there's there's three countries left that still have polio, Pakistan, Nigeria and Afghanistan. And uh, I think in my segment, I had said something along the lines of like, they really need to step up their game and and eradicate polio. And what we should have, I wish we had kind of um, dove into was Mm. more of the reasons of why that that polio still exists in those countries today, because it's not like those countries like polio. Exactly. (laughs) Once. polio. Um, but one of the more interesting reasons that I've learned about is that I, I th- it was I think is either the CIA. It, it's one of our um, like military operative efforts overseas where in Pakistan, one of the ways they tried to uh, find where Osama bin Laden was when we still hadn't found where he was, um, was they kind of masqueraded as uh, as vaccine givers in Pakistan and they would go home to home testing um, the like I think they would take like mouth swabs to test the the genetics of the people that live there mm-hmm. um, under the facade of oh we're going to give you free vaccines but we need to know like your genetics I don't know what it was exactly but um, what they were really doing was trying to see if anybody from Osama bin Laden's family was living in that household. Um, oh. And Pakistan found out that that was what was going on. And so there was this inherent distrust of anyone giving out vaccines for a long time. And well, so, of course. Uh, yeah. yeah, like obviously. And so there's, you know, there is some irritation to the United States as to like, you don't realize what harm you're doing when you think of these creative efforts to um, find bad guys. And when we talk about Pakistan not having um, eradicated polio, there's a lot of layers to it that, you know, if we had time in Bill Nye, we would have been able to dive into those more. Sure, yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely, there's a lot of depth there that I think um, could use a, a a much deeper dive and maybe even like an investigative journalism type show like a front line um, whereas of course what I think some people didn't expect when they sat down to watch Bill Nye Saves the World and were pleasantly surprised is that 
half of the writing team are comedy writers and the show is just really really fun and it's smart of course and it's informational but it's not really an overtly educational show it's a very smart show that's meant to be entertaining right exactly it's i i think my favorite adjective to describe it is always quirky it is a quirky science show and it's reminiscent of bill nye's old show um i think it's still working to find its identity. They tried out a lot of different really fun and interesting things in the first season. Um, and so if it gets picked up for a second season, I'll be curious to see what you know changes are made to, to make it even better. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I mean, I think sometimes that's always the case with a brand new show. We always right, find that even right. on, even in like scripted dramas, you know how when you first watch a, a show and, mm-hmm. you're, and you're like, oh, that's obviously the pilot episode. <laughs> like, you can always <laughs> tell the difference. Um, but yeah, and then people find their voices and characters find their personalities. And it's the same thing, I think, with nonfiction um, programming. Right, where exactly. A groove, a groove comes in and people become comfortable with it. And that's why fingers are always crossed for many, many more seasons. I'm sure if you look back at um, at your science show on Exploration Station and you oh look at the first God. couple episodes, <laughs> isn't that always it's fun to do? Cringeworthy, <laughs> because like we're talking. I did engineering for eight years, and I've never been on TV. I'd never done TV before in my life, and so that first season is very cringeworthy <laughs> to watch because there's parts of it where you can tell. I'm trying to be more reserved and more serious. And then there's other times where I'm like, let's try to be like more Bill Nye and like Mm -hmm. goofy and silly and cute. And then I would see those episodes and be like, no, 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 no. That is not you. (laughs) That is not you, girlfriend. I'm sure he would be so pleased to hear you use his name as an adjective. (laughs) (laughs) Bill Nye. Bill Nye. (laughs) Of course. Um, Yeah, no, it's so funny. Everybody, it's it's a mark of true improvement and true growth when you're like embarrassed to look back at your earliest episodes. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, Yeah. all of my friends say the same things. And I'm sure you could give Derek a run run for his money if you look at early Veritasium videos as well. Um, But yeah, what a fun, fun experience. And it was so cool to see you in person um when i was yeah. invited to come to you the a premiere screening. Yeah, right? yeah 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 at netflix because i was lucky enough to be on a panel in the alternative medicine yeah. episode um and i know i really only ended up on the panel because i'm friends with some of the writers on the show and they kept coming to me for um advice about who to book because of course i work in skepticism and the host of my other podcast is Stephen novella who's probably the most preeminent um physician skeptic out there so who should we book who should we book? try this person try this person and, and after none of them could make it work with their schedules they were like uh oh, Kara, you want to come on <laughs> oh my gosh how was that exciting were you like heck yeah i want to do that it was so fun it was tough though it was very trying because we had somebody on our panel who was like really in many ways a true believer and it was very yeah. difficult it's so tough to even get into nuance when it comes to these things just like you were talking about the nuance with the anti-vax um, um, yeah, uh, kind of mentality because it's so much deeper than just willful ignorance. It oftentimes comes from a very emotional place and a place that has years and years of complicated kind of geopolitical baggage um, going along with it. So in this case, it was actually just... Um, I think an upstanding, very interesting scientist who's doing good work in his lab on snake venom, who has some incredibly misguided views about, um, gosh, everything under the sun, crystals and about (laughs) homeopathy and about chiropractic and all the things. And so it was like, we couldn't even really get into a nuanced conversation because every time Bill would be like, yeah, but we all agree that like crystals aren't magic. And he would be like, well... (laughs) And you're like, oh, oh okay. we're like trying to find some common ground here. <laughs> I know. And it was great because a little behind the scenes, um, when we were going on and on and on, it, we got into like a heated anti-vax conversation. And ultimately, oh, no. yeah, ultimately that didn't even make it up in the episode, of course, because there were, you guys did a whole episode about mm. vaccines, as you just mentioned. And finally, the executive producer had to say like, OK, guys, we can't even like we got to refocus because we have a whole episode. Well, yeah. on this. <laughs> well that was part of it is that with these episodes, they wanted to film almost in some cases two episodes a day yeah which is just so much to do and it makes it difficult when you have these really interesting panels to touch base on every relevant or interesting topic or even worse if you don't get to 
talk about something that's uh, you know pertinent to the conversation, that's it. Like we, they've already written the monologue for Bill after that. They've already made the segments for that show after that. That's just that's all that's going to be in the show. And there's no there's no turning back. There's no redoing the panel. There's no oh that was an interesting topic. Maybe we should invite an expert on that specifically to also be in the show. Like nope, there's no iteration. Yeah, it's really, really tough. And that's kind of, I think, part and parcel of having this talk show format. And you think about it with people that do daily talk shows and how difficult that must be. Where it's like, you know, we're in and we're out. And once the show's over, it's a new day. We got to start all over. Yeah, exactly. And I, I mean, it's wild to me that those shows can even happen because I'm thinking of all of the effort that the writers did and the producers did for one for one season 13 episode season of this show for one year and some Mm -hmm. people have these shows almost every day like that's that's wild to me it's true and there's a full writer's room on um on the bill nye show i i did um his like maybe three four years ago now i did about a year on a show called take part live which um went away when the whole network went away. It was on Pivot, which was Participants Mm. Network. Um, It was kind of an experiment, didn't really stick. But I got so much experience on that show co-hosting because it, it was exactly that. It was a daily live show. And it was so much work. oh my god now like yeah. when I go out you know for meetings my agent will set me on meetings at different networks and people will be talking about development on things and every time we hear the word live daily I'm like I don't know if I even want to go on this meeting because <laughs> it's just it's you don't have a life you know what I mean these people no. like the Ellens of the world the Oprah's of the world and of course all of the news anchors that you see on your daily news programming are just they're at work all day every day Absolutely. And I think it changes the type when you're talking about science shows, it changes the type of science that you can cover. Because with with like um, I did a stint with Discovery News where I would write and host some of their uh, YouTube videos. And with that, it was basically you have the next four hours to write a three minute science video. And when you only have four hours to do something, it, it can only be so journalistic. You can't really uh, get a topic that is going to have many different facets. It, it really has to focus on something that's kind of topical and and maybe like a, on a paper or something that's more of a news type related item. Whereas when I write my TV shows, we have months to come up with the segments of of uh, within the episode and the experts that we curate to talk about these different segments, and so you can really cover different types of topics um, depending on what style you're using. Absolutely, and I think a lot of times what we don't see as viewers of this kind of content, whether it be web or TV content, which you know obviously the lines, <clears throat> excuse me, around the difference between linear television and and web content are getting blurrier and blurrier. But um, what we don't often see as the consumers of this content is what kinds of resources are available to the content creators. Sometimes, like you said, we're talking four hours versus weeks or even months. Other times, we're talking a $250 you know, budget versus a $250,000 budget and you know how Absolutely. many people are working on it. Are there other writers? Are there fact checkers? Do I have an editor? Am I doing all the work myself or am I one cog in a really big machine where I don't really have that much say in what goes on? And um, those of us who work in these fields, I think we have our toe in a lot of different types of content production, but it's a vastly different experience um, being like a correspondent on someone else's show versus mm-hmm. hosting or creating your own show, which of course I think is what a lot of people's goals are. But I don't know. I get sometimes bummed out about the landscape of American science communication because yeah. we just don't have as many opportunities here. Right. It can it can definitely it's a it's a different beast. And there's trade offs with, you know, when you are part of a larger cog, usually you have a larger reach. But when you are creating your own show, you have more control over the content. You can be creative. You can try things without getting permission. You can move faster, iterate faster. um, But you may not be getting that same reach. 
Yeah, and um, you may be limited yeah. in terms of like what you can do because you simply can't afford to travel or to do post-production the way you would like to. And you don't have help. So sometimes mm -hmm. just the amount of time it takes to do things is limiting. Like you can't do as deep a dive or you can't do as much reporting as you would like because with a room full of writers, everybody can be on the phone with a scientist at the same time. Exactly. And that's also, I think, a trade-off or, you know, this is relevant to what people are creating on YouTube versus what I do on television. Like I, on television, I have, um, I need to get approval from my executive producer and I have a handful of other people that I work with on my team and we all have to come to some type of consensus as to what we want to create. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, I have to get permission from others. I have to work with others to, to implement an idea, um, which can be great. But, you know, sometimes my ideas get, sh get shot down. Um, yeah. But with a YouTuber, you are your own boss. You're your own creator. But you don't often have that reach unless you are one of the few famous youtubers so yeah unless you're unless you're derek <laughs> unless you're derek <laughs> you are probably not reaching thousands of people or millions of people so uh with a tv show it's a larger platform i'm in people's homes uh and it's that's helpful but you know i don't have as as much of a creative license to try new things because we've we've created a show for four years now so our viewers are expecting a certain style, a certain type of content. And so once we have that format, it's really hard to, to you know, steer away from that. Whereas Absolutely. with YouTube, you can try lots of cool things. Absolutely. And it, it is true. If you deviate too much from something that feels consistent, you will lose um, viewers often because there is some and and n not to blame the viewer because we are the viewers, too. It, there's just something fundamental to human nature that we want consistency in our in our television. We want to mm -hmm. know what we're walking into. That's why we go there every week, because we know it's going to be something we like um, and, and we continue to come back. But I, I would love to talk about sort of the elephant in the room, which, um, you know, there's always these like resurgences of news articles and of uh, focus in social media kind of it comes in waves but it's always in the background which is sort of the gender um, division when it comes to not just uh, linear television like traditional television but also I think some of this, these newer um, alternative media sources like YouTube, that's not even alternative anymore, mm -hmm. but I, I guess I could say uh, digital media sources. It's just, you know, we always get these articles that pop up that are like, where are the women? Where are, and All we're like, time. we're here. Yes. Hello. <laughs> I've been here for years. <laughs> but you are one of the very few who have, um, I think, I don't want to say been lucky enough because I don't want to um, belittle all oh, of the work that you've done. But, but yeah, there's definitely a lot of luck involved. But yeah, like who, who has the, the great opportunity and really responsibility to have your own show as a female, not just to be a correspondent on a mm -hmm. man's show, which is what we often do experience. Yeah, yeah. I was very thankful that my executive producer, he's done a good job. We have, um, out of the six shows, there's three women who are involved. And um, the other host of the Biomimicry show is this African-American woman with a background in um, marine sciences. And so he wanted to, he specifically, he's like a casting director, right? And he's the one who chooses who is the host of these different shows. And he specifically wanted uh, a woman with a background in science and engineering to be the host of my show. So I got, I got lucky that he was looking for that. I got pretty lucky that he found me considering I haven't done any TV stuff. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I, I think you have to have an executive producer who is usually male because most executive producers are guys yeah. uh, to recognize the value in diversity. And what I've found is, you know, because now my uh, with my current job, I will go for interviews for um, or with my current field. I go into interviews to be host of new shows, new science shows, mm -hmm. and I'll I'll get paired with a production company that has this idea um, for a science show where, for example, um, one was a science show where I would travel the world showing and highlighting the scientists who go to the ends of the earth to do their science. And it would be like an extreme science kind of show. And it sounded really cool. I was really into it. 
Um, they said I would be the host of it. They went to different net- networks and networks gave them feedback and said, you know, um, most of our audience is male. To make this relatable to our audience, she's going to need to have a male co-host. And yep. And that happens. <laughs> that's that's like one example of. And that's like that's like a better example is like you still oh, get exactly. to be a co-host, you know? Oh, absolutely. That is like uh, the most positive outcome of a situation that could happen with the current networks in charge because to yeah. them, you know, it it there's this circular argument of well, our audience is predominantly male, so we get male co or male host of shows which brings predominantly male viewers, which means we predominantly get male hosts. And so there's yeah. this like cyclical behavior that happens because networks put so much money into a show that they are pretty risk averse. Um, and so you can uh, you can empathize to a certain extent, but I think that they need to give their viewers more credit and that they would actually listen to uh, a female host. Um, so I hope that, that that landscape changes pretty soon. Absolutely. And, you know, the truth of the matter, it's it's something we're always fighting. I think there's a built-in male audience when it comes to science. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't tons of women and girls who are fascinated by science, but it's something I even struggle with on, on Talk Nerdy. I have a predominantly male audience, and I am a female host of a podcast where 50% plus of my guests on the show are also female, and I still have a predominantly male audience. So even though that in and of itself is still a problem... It sort of flies in the face of the reasoning of a lot of these network executives that, like, somehow yeah. we have to cater to a male audience by having a male host. That's not the case. Right. Yeah. Like, give them more credit. <laughs> I yeah, think they'd also sure. like to see a little bit of diversity. And what's interesting is I think that's more reflective of the just the, the state of engineering and science today and that it's a male dominated field um, yeah. for adults. But kids and younger uh, in the younger generation, I find that there are there's an equal balance of little girls and boys that are interested in science, which, you know, makes sense because there's a lot of societal factors that um, maybe cause women to leave the STEM fields um, at later stages in life. But for my show, which we get kids as young as six years old to watch the show, we have had consistent uh, demographic ratings of a 50-50 split of women and male um, audience viewers. So it's I think it's more once they get older, those demographics mm-hmm. change. And so the media, if you're putting out media that is catered to an older audience, you're more likely to have a male-dominated um, demographic. For sure. Yeah. And that's something I've struggled with historically because the podcast, of course, does cater to an older audience, mostly because I have an explicit rating and I say fuck sometimes. Um, And so because of that, it's an older audience. But also um, and I talk about politics and atheism and just things that I think are more um, adult issues. But beyond that, also, apparently podcasting as a medium has a stronger male audience. So it's like Mm. a double difficult there, whereas TV, we know. Interesting. Yeah. TV doesn't um, doesn't skew. But the bummer thing is that we would think, okay, we want to say this is just the old guard and TV's, you know, it's legacy and it's all the network executives are crusty old men and that's why (laughs) this is happening. Yet, when we look at successful YouTube science, like science YouTubers, we still find, and there's some great women doing amazing things like Vanessa Hill with Braincraft and Amy Shira Titel and Emily Grassley and all these really great women. Yet, when you compare their numbers to the strongest um, male uh, pages like Vsauce and Veritasium Mm -hmm. and uh, Minute Physics and Smarter Every Day and all of those, it's still like worlds apart. And maybe it's just because there were more guys as early adopters and a lot of the YouTube numbers have to do with how long you've been YouTubing. But it still Mm -hmm. makes me worried that we see the split even in new media. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it's 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 weird. Um, and I'm, I want to attribute it to, okay, Vsauce, Veritasium, they got in pretty early. And a lot yeah. of the, the women that you mentioned, I, I've become aware of them in recent years or they've started their channels in, in recent years. But I don't know if that's always the case. Um, yeah, I, it's it's 
pretty, I, I, there's a lot of other factors, I think, because mm-hmm. I've been asked the question of, you know, why don't we have a female Bill Nye? Um, yeah, and me too. Oh my gosh, so much lately people are asking me that So question. much, yeah. People yeah. have been wondering where, I mean, I guess with the Bill Nye show, they're, they're yeah. just curious why there isn't a female Bill Nye in this day and age. But I think part of the reason is that women, when we talk about science, we have to toe a very fine line. And if we're too goofy or silly, we can be perceived as ditzy and bimbo-like um, and not taken seriously. Or if we are too assertive and too confident, like let's say more of a Neil deGrasse Tyson type of storytelling and communicating, um, we're seen as arrogant and bitchy. Yeah. And so it, it's you have to find a very, very special woman that would be ex- accepted in the current societal uh like boundaries of what we consider to be appropriate science communication to create another female or to create a female bill nye and then she has to be willing to put up with so like when bill was first doing what he was doing in um like public access in seattle i think it was and um and started to grow and grow and have more of a national foothold in classrooms people didn't have the capability to fill up the comment section. There was no comment section, right? right so people couldn't right. just directly reach out and be like, you're terrible. I hate you. I hate the way you look. I hate the way you sound. I hate yeah, the way you do this. kill I yourself. Exactly. But now it's like not only would the, that very special woman have to have all of those features you described, she would also have to be willing to put up with a lot of garbage. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you, I ha- I don't have my own YouTube channel. People always ask, why aren't you on YouTube? And I'm like, I don't want to be on YouTube. I just yeah. don't want to do that. YouTube is pretty mean. I've had, I guess I've done a few TEDx talks and Mm -hmm. those have garnered some attention. And in the comment section, there are some brutal comments. Just like, go hide under your bed and cry for a little while comments. And so you just, it's, it's, I understand steering away from that. Yeah, it's terrible. Like I'm all over YouTube, although I don't have my own channel because I've been on a lot of other people's channels. And I used to do The Young Turks a lot, which is a political show Mm -hmm. that gets a ton of eyeballs. And it's really tough, exactly for the reasons that you mentioned before. If I'm too firm and I'm too assertive, then I'm such a bitch. And if I make a joke, then I'm not serious enough. And it's the same thing with podcasting, right? People ask all the time, well, why don't you do a video podcast? And it's like, because I don't want you talking about my boobs. I want you talking about the words I'm saying. And it's one thing when we're uh, on TV, because yeah. on TV, we, we know we're going into that. So we do our hair and makeup and we get prepared and we blah, blah, blah. But yeah. isn't it exhausting? Like, I'm not the kind of person who gets all dolled up every single day just to be alive. I only oh, do yeah. it when I'm going to be on camera. And it's exhausting. Yes. Oh, my God. I have just like two modes of how I look. It's like on camera, 50 pounds of makeup, fake eyelashes. And I spent, you know, half an hour on my hair. Or I am in Lululemon. I haven't washed my hair in four days, and uh, I hopefully so took a shower that day. You <laughs> like, are so after. There is no middle ground. Seriously, I say all the time. Thank goodness for athleisure, because that is like yes. I'm so glad it's oh okay to basically wear your workout clothes or your pajamas in public. Because I do oh, it every absolutely. day. Absolutely, every day, and I go to the same coffee shops every day to work on my shows, and I'm like. I wonder what the baristas here think I do. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Like, don't you have a job, girl? Uh, like, isn't it time to wash your hair? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's a lot. It's a, it's a lot. It, um, it makes me wonder. I, I'm, you know, trying to think about the, the struggles that I have in my own career and also the the excitements and the wins and the wonderful things. But it makes me um, it makes me wonder for you, like, what is the most difficult part, do you think, about being a freelancer? Yeah, I well, right now, I am not experiencing this as much because I have, I found out that my Fox show has been picked up um, yeah, through season so seven. some security there. Some security, yeah. But, like, we have bills and lives, and I'm getting married in a few months, and I have mm. to pay for that wedding. And oh, my God, just congratulations. Like having, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> but, like, you know, having a consistent source of income is probably the scariest aspect of doing what we do because – I, I, if, you know, in three years when I'm done with my exploration outer space show, I'm still going to have bills and I'm still going to have things that I 
uh, need, like food, um, that costs <laughs> money. <laughs> and so I'm going to have to find a new job. So that that's a little bit scary. The whole job security thing is probably like my least favorite aspect of this whole career I've done. For sure. And I think what people also don't realize, I, I think there's an assumption that just because you're on TV, you automatically make a ton of money. Oh, definitely. Oh, my <laughs> yeah. God. I, I This was like a labor of love for the first two, three years that I did this because all of my friends like graduating from MIT with their PhDs or master's programs were getting paid twice as much as I was, mm-hmm. like twice as much. And I was just like feeling like I was still living my grad school life. Um, yeah first job out of MIT and my parents were sort of like, okay, so is this, is this going to be, is this going to be it? Like you <laughs> like, worked all like your life engineer. Yeah. <laughs> to get this very difficult engineering degree at this very difficult <laughs> school and all of your friends are making money. What are you doing? <laughs> yeah. It's so funny. It's like, unless you are in that kind of top, I don't know, 5% of, of yeah. Hollywood. And a lot of that is scripted, right? Like non-scripted, uh, non-scripted yes. sort of nonfiction programming, especially, unfortunately, in the kids' space, is just not that lucrative. It's a tough, right. it's a tough space. Yeah, which is why, like, my, oh, my God, my taxes are so confusing <laughs> because I have, like, six different sources of income because mm-hmm. you have to, like, put all these gigs together to create one career that makes sense. And so, yeah, there's, there's like, speaking and, and books and you can do, like, these one-off things where you MC some type of science gala or something. And those are all really fun, but you just have to be constantly finding these unique uh, gigs to, to make sure that you're constantly bringing in money. Yeah, and it's not like... I mean, it is fun. Don't get me wrong. It's absolutely fun. I think both you and I have, like, we're so lucky. We have the greatest jobs in the world. Definitely. Yeah. But it's not like it's... it's um volunteer work. I think sometimes people get confused by that too, because if I were, you know, a full-time physician or a full-time professor, and then I periodically would give talks at places that I thought were interesting, that would be one thing. But when we give talks, that's our job. Like we have to get paid for that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And I, and it's, you feel bad because I I have all of these like people that are like we don't we're a nonprofit and we uh-huh. do really good work and we just we were wondering if you could fly in and give a, a speech for us like we're we're really good at, at, at encouraging girls in our area to go into science and I'm just like I applaud that effort but girlfriend like I would not ask you to do your job for free this is yeah this takes like three days of work that I wouldn't be able to do things otherwise and so I've kind of found like my own way of of doing things like that like I do Skype calls almost every week with mm-hmm. schools because that only takes like a half an hour of my time I can literally be at home I give the same talk and so I don't have to prepare for it and so it, it that is like my volunteering I yeah, that's I smart. no longer like because you have to learn to say no it, it just you have it, to you yeah. have to I actually a few years ago started um, giving away two gratis events a year and so oh, and it that's helped a smart me way to do it yeah it helped me because then I had a line in the sand and if somebody comes to me and says we'd love for you to come to this thing we'll pay for your expenses but we don't have any funds to pay for you because mm-hmm. of course I'm not going to do it if I have to pay for like yeah what, it's going to cost me money to do that's crazy no but <laughs> yeah. sometimes they're like sorry we can't pay you but we'll fly you out and it's like but what you don't understand is like you just said all that time that I'm in the air and in the hotel room and blah blah I'm not able to do my job which means it, yeah. it is kind of costing me money so I give away two gratis talks a year often to the first two that ask me and mm-hmm. um and then at least I don't feel as guilty when I say no because Absolutely. I say listen I you know I already gave mine away reach out to me earlier next year and we can hopefully work it out for 2018 um but oh. it's hard it's hard yeah yeah it definitely is because you you can see their side of it and I can remember being a student and trying to find speakers for an event and so it yeah that is I I like that way of doing it because then I think everybody understands where you're coming from and it sounds fair so that's absolutely and it is hard like um I have two friends of mine and I started a uh I don't know I guess you could call it a retreat a few years ago called SciComm Camp and it's really about getting together science communicators of all ilks together for a long weekend 
to network and train and oh my god it's so much fun and you know it costs money to go but we try to keep it really really affordable because we know some of the people who come are grad students and Mm -hmm. all the meals are included and all the housing is included it's like at a summer camp which is so fun it's like grown up summer camp (laughs) but we strive to pay all of our workshop leaders and all of our um, keynotes we don't have much money so the honorariums are paltry (laughs) but we know what it's like to not get paid and sometimes just the effort of having some money available is kind of a way to nod and say like we know that what you do is really important granted we broke so we can't give you that much money but like hopefully this helps because it means a lot for uh to us that you're here but it is it's hard to be on that side of the equation too and kind of be like hey can you come do this for way less than i know you would usually make yeah uh, (laughs) keeps me honest i guess I know. Well, I guess it's good to like go down the line because some people, everyone has their own speaking fee. So there's yep. different, there's definitely like a range. I mean, when I learned how much money people like Neil deGrasse Tyson and me the too. Mythbusters guys made for a talk, I was like, are you freaking kidding me? Like, I know. I called so up my agent. Money. I was like, what yeah. are we doing? <laughs> like, like they get paid like $100,000 for an hour talk sometimes. Yep. That's like, that is freaking wild. Yeah. I mean, that's enough money that they could literally pay somebody else a fraction of that to write the talk for them. Oh, <laughs> like, absolutely. they don't even have to do any work. And I'm sure they're using a talk they've given before. Like, yeah, this is. Yeah, that's true, too. Yeah, you just have to change one or two slides. Work. Yeah. Like, welcome to Chicago. How are you doing, yeah. Chicago? And then roll into <laughs> your standard talk. <laughs> yeah, it's like that funny joke. Do you? I don't know if you remember when Flight of the Concords, before they got their show on HBO, they did a really great um, comedy special on HBO. And they start out, and I think it was Brett. He's like, uh, we're so excited to be here in. And then he looks at the back of his guitar <laughs> as if he had like written a note. And he was like, in um, America. <laughs> and died laughing. But yeah, that's exactly what it's like. It's like adapt it to the museum that you're speaking at and then give yeah. the same talk over and over. And of course, when you're that big, when you're that famous, people are there just to see you. Exactly. I mean, they're, that's they're so happy true. if they learn something along the way, but you don't really have to work on making your talk incredibly informative. You just have to make it kind of entertaining and exciting for people to come. Whereas you and I, I think, um, oh, yeah. are at the level where we still get paid, which is great. And every time I give a talk, I'm like, thank goodness, because my speaking fee goes up and up and up, which is, you know, the goal. Mm-hmm. But um but I better bring it when I give a talk. I yeah. better earn that money. Yeah. And like, you know, only doing this for a couple of years, I'm still learning what works and what doesn't. Yeah. And I, I think since we're younger also, it's hard to gauge, you know, what a general a general audience will find funny and what they will mm-hmm. find interesting. And so I've definitely, I've given so many different types of talks. And even now when I get booked for a talk, I still spend probably like I don't I would say like 15 to 20 hours writing and practicing it and usually I'll I'll give it and then I will note what made the audience laugh and when I felt like the audience started looking at their phones because it was boring so I'm like okay cut that out for next time and so you just kind of you iterate and you move forward and it's it's very it's a good learning experience to see what just a normal person finds Uh, what science they find interesting. Yeah, I definitely, um, I remember when I made that turn between being able to just go up on stage with maybe one or two note cards in my back pocket and just go like I'm a good bullshitter so like I could just go (laughs) for an hour and just kind of talk and sometimes I like that vibe you know but the first time I realized like okay I'm making decent money for this I should put together some polished slides and actually practice and rehearse like a good kind of um, (laughs) like a TED talk style yeah like a good (laughs) like prepared speaker and I was like wow this is a lot of work it is it can be so much work and what I found is way easier if you can ever spin this is if you just suggest that it's a like an hour-long Q&A because oh, yeah. then you get the questions beforehand you look at what they're interested in you think of a few stories to tell or a few science um, examples to give and that's it and it's it, it's actually I think more engaging for the audience too to hear a back and forth rather than just a lecture so I, I've, I've tried to do those more often now 
Yeah, it's much more kind of like podcasting in a way. It's authentic. Yeah. It's really natural. You can get personal. And I feel the same way about panels. I love being on panels. And I love also, I often get hired to moderate panels with, you know, bigger names. Like recently I moderated a panel with uh, Brian Green and Michio Kaku and James Gates. Wow. And it was so much fun. So because. Cool. Yeah, like, you know, I kind of didn't fully understand everything they were saying because they're all string <laughs> theorists. But I got to learn a lot and I got to um, really engage with them. And of course, I know the kinds of questions that that need to be asked. So it, it really worked all the way around. But um, but yeah, yeah, when you're just when it's just you on stage with a big, big screen behind you and you're expected to basically perform, it's almost more pressure than walking in front of a TV camera. Yeah, yeah, it absolutely can be. And but I liked your perspective of being the moderator in the, the Q&A yeah. version because it's actually when I've done that, one of my more interesting ones I did, I interviewed Sean Carroll, um, a physicist about general relativity a couple yeah. years ago during the anniversary of um, of general relativity. And it forced me to actually understand special and general relativity. Mm-hmm. And it was such a fun excuse to dive into that topic, something that is usually outside the realm of things that I study. And it it's a it's always kind of um, just a fun exercise and learning something new because you actually have to learn it pretty well if you're a moderator. You, When people ask you to be moderators, sometimes I don't think they quite understand how much work goes into <laughs> being a good moderator. Um, yeah, a good moderator knows what the speakers are talking about, so knows how to ask exactly. the follow-ups and how to pivot. A bad moderator has a list of questions that they've already written, and mm-hmm. they don't deviate from that, and it feels stiff and, and like in, incongruous. But when, you, when you're good at it, it feels people don't realize that you've actually put the work in. It just seems like you're naturally right. having a flow. Yeah. Or also I've been in situations with, um, I've moderated a panel with like SpaceX and the president of SpaceX and some other um, space related companies where they are in an audience where some of their customers are in. And so they their job is to make their company sound as good as possible. The moderator's job is to call them on their bullshit. Yeah, exactly. They're not talking about that recent rocket explosion that just yep. happened and is pushing all of their schedules back a bit. Um, <laughs> so you have to just like stay on your toes and not be afraid to kind of butt heads with some of the other people on the panel. Yeah, I'll tell you what. I think that that's honestly... Um, one of the most difficult aspects for me of the work that we do is when I'm asked to do man on the street interviews or I'm asked to do things where I just basically walk up to people and like accost them and ask them Mm -hmm. questions. I don't enjoy that. I love a nice produced piece and I don't mind doing something off the cuff and doing improv and having fun, but I, I hate catching people off guard when they're not expecting it. I feel super guilty. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I, I'm actually not super familiar with that because I haven't had to do that for any of the stuff that I've done before. But I just love the aspect of my job where it seems like the scientists and engineers that I'm talking to are pretty excited to be on the show, to be interviewed, to kind of take time out of their work day to do something different. And I think if my subject was an unwilling participant, I would just be like, oh, can we just skip this part? I don't actually want to do this. So uncomfortable. Yet some people yeah. are so good at it. Some people can just walk up to anyone on the street and be like, hey, let's um, let's chat. And yeah. it's like, Ugh, yeah. I'm always like, can you ask them? I ask my producer, can you go up and ask them if they want to be on camera yeah. first? <laughs> I don't want to. Excuse me, ma'am. Excuse yeah. me. Oh, God. Um, but yeah, oh my gosh, this is this has been such a fun chat. It's so fun to kind of, I think, lift the curtain and see what happens a little bit behind the scenes, especially when it comes to uh, the glitz and glamour and sometimes uh, less so of Hollywood. <laughs> um, yep. And I'm so excited to learn about uh, about your book series. It's going to be so Yay. much fun. And it's so yeah. important what you're doing. I think you're such a great role model for girls, but also for, for women and also for men to be able to see you out there just doing what you love and owning it. So I thank you for that. Oh, thank you. That's very sweet. Of course. And so, okay, before we go, because I got... Uh, I got berated for not doing this by my by my <laughs> listeners a few weeks ago. I ask my um, my guests the same two questions at the end of every podcast, and so I'd love to get your perspective on these questions. You okay with that? Oh yeah. 
All right, here we go. So when you think about the future in whatever context is relevant to you right now, it could be your own life. It could be the future of the planet. It could be the future of the universe, um, especially somebody like you. Maybe that's what you're thinking of. Um, <laughs> number one, what is the thing that worries you the most, keeps you up the most at night, kind of preoccupies your thinking? And number two, on the flip side of that, what are you most excited, hopeful, kind of optimistic about? Yeah, um, I would say the thing that it concerns me a little bit is this is this has a little bit to do with technology because I think technology is a great way for humans to escape. And I think we're making it much easier for humans to escape and become unattached to any other human being if they so chose to. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm most concerned with the state of mental health and where that will go. Um, I love virtual reality and I've tested some really freaking cool virtual reality uh, devices recently that just make you feel like you are entering an entirely new world. Um, yeah. And it makes me just a little concerned with how that will affect humans' ability to interact with each other. Um, I'm not one to be like, oh, this generation, all they do is talk on their phones because I love my phone and I think <laughs> it's a great way to interact with people online and I feel like I'm social throughout the day by talking to people online. Um, but for others that I think have mental health issues, it, it becomes easier to just disassociate. Um, so I'm a little bit concerned with that just because I don't think our government and our society uh, takes mental health as seriously as they should. And so when we think about how technologies progress, there's often, we think of, you know, the most negative ways that that technology could affect society. And that's a good thing because it helps us mitigate those problems as the technology evolves. Um, but if we don't consider it a problem in the first place, like mental health, then you're not mm -hmm. considering that side of things as the technology progresses. So that's the one thing that I would think um, I am a bit concerned about. Um, the thing I'm most optimistic about is kind of the flip side of that is transportation seems to uh, things like Hyperloop and mm -hmm. um, Musk's new idea of underground transportation, um, underground like fast automatic transportation. I like the idea that we are finding ways to get from A to B faster because I think that will help encourage people to travel the world a bit more. Coming from West Virginia, I know a lot of people from our city that just have never left. And yeah. part of that, um, I think, is because the nearest airport is an hour and a half, two hours away, and it's not super easy to get there. And so when you make things easier to do, it'll open the gate for more people to try it. And I love traveling. I think traveling has a lot of benefits as to how we uh, perceive other cultures, how we empathize with other people, and there's a lot of benefits to learning how to be confident and independent when you travel. And so I, I love the idea that traveling is becoming easier and I think it's going to have a net positive effect on society. Here, here. I absolutely agree. And I love both of those answers because they are not the same answers we get every week. So I'm, I'm excited nice. for your perspective. Yeah. Thank you for that. So, absolutely. OK, Emily, before you go, we have to talk about all of the different ways that people can see your work and they can get in touch. So we'll start with um, with the Ada Lay series. That is uh, can you already pre-order it on Amazon? Yeah. Yeah. You can pre-order the first two books. Um, just uh, look on Amazon and either search for Ada Lace or Ada Lace Adventures. They'll come up. Uh, with that A-D-A-L-A-C-E, Ada Lace. Um, and yeah, the first two are available for pre-order. There's going to be five total. Awesome. And then Exploration Outer Space, that is on Saturday mornings on your local Fox affiliate. Yep, that's right. Okay. And of course, Bill Nye Saves the World is out right now. It's on Netflix. You can binge watch every episode. You can watch them all in a row if you want to. I don't yep. recommend it. Or maybe <laughs> I do. I don't know. Not the worst thing in the world to binge on. So um, yeah. So yeah, all those places. But then, how can they uh, how can they find you in social media? Yep, on all social medias: Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. I am at the Space Gal, the Space Gal. See, that's genius. Way to, way to grab all those up before anyone else did. That was so smart. <laughs> well, Emily, thank you so much for joining me. This was such a fun conversation. Yeah, this was great. Thanks for having me. This was awesome. Of course. And everybody listening, thank you for coming back week after week. I'm really looking forward to the next time we all get together to talk nerdy. 